Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Data protection regulation, which is often conflated with privacy policies, have become a global challenge for compliance and cooperation. Many technology policy experts agree that the U.S. needs a federal privacy law and should find common ground with other nations on how to manage the data that is collected on customers. But beyond the U.S., particularly to Europe, it becomes obvious that the excessive regulation can harm innovation and perhaps be technically difficult to implement without a good collaborative effort between all the stakeholders. In particular, law enforcement, the intellectual property and copyright space have faced additional burdens under the EU's 2018 General Data Protection Regulation, also known as GDPR. The Internet Corporation on Assigned Names and Numbers, known as ICANN, runs a domain name lookup system called the WHOIS. That has been available since the creation of domain names, and it allows law enforcement agencies, IP right holders, and trademark owners to have access to the data on who registered a domain name. However, GDPR has created an uncertainty around the ability to access this information on European customers. And with this challenge, companies who harbor this data have a serious risk concern with a potential fine of 4% of any company's entire global revenue. While law enforcement and others seeking information on domain names will still need access to this registration data, the member countries of the European Union may see a company giving access to this data as a privacy violation. My guest today is Brian King, Director of Internet Policy and Industry Affairs at the IP group Clarivate, a firm that specializes in trademark issues and brand protection. He is currently serving a term on the International Trademark Association's Data Protection Committee, and he also represents the IP constituency on the Expedited Policy Development Process, or EPDP, at ICANN. Brian joins us today to talk about the future of privacy regulation and what it might mean for the intellectual property and public safety constituencies. Hi, Brian. Thank you for being a guest on Explain to Shane today. Thanks for having me, Shane. I am sorry that I won't be seeing you in Germany as originally planned, as we are both ICANN sycophants who go to many meetings a year, but not in the year of 2020. So it's great to hear your voice. And I know you've been doing a lot of work, both in the ICANN space, but in privacy in general. So let's start kind of at the beginning. Do you just want to give us a quick primer on how privacy laws in the U.S. work? Sure, Shane, I'd be happy to. The U.S. takes what's considered a sectoral approach to privacy laws. And by sectoral, I mean that different sectors are regulated differently depending on what type of personal data is being regulated. And some sectors include health data. So many of your listeners will be familiar with HIPAA or financial data covered under the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. So sectoral, yeah. It's, and then the California Data Protection Regulations, I think that was the first time I really became aware that we, and especially California, as they're also doing with their current privacy law, affect the world. Because the way these companies decide to manage their risk is they just tell everybody every time there's a data breach, which isn't a bad thing. We should all know that. But the California law even lets people in Australia and Singapore know that they've had a data breach, which is interesting. Which leads me to... Do you think we should have a federal privacy law since we're having such strong you know, reactions to things that are coming out of places like California and Washington states looking at doing something similar? Yes, Shane, I think so. I think the time is right for a federal privacy law in the U.S. My personal view is that it is very difficult for organizations to manage 
data breach rules, for example, data breach laws that, that vary across all 50 states and vary based on the standards used, like the likelihood and magnitude of consumer harm, the number of records that have been breached before a, a notification obligation arises. And the, the time is really right to protect data in a way that's predictable for both for consumers and for the companies and organizations that need to comply with this patchwork of laws. We can make life a lot easier for a lot of consumers, individuals, and organizations if the federal government were to pass a consolidated omnibus privacy law in the U.S. One example I use is mobile devices. And for those of us that do, you're used to travel a lot and look forward to traveling again. You know, the idea that my phone, like you just were recently out hiking. God love you for being in the beautiful October weather on a mountaintop. But, you know, you move from, let's say, Washington, D.C. through Maryland, maybe to West Virginia or Pennsylvania. And the idea that state by state, that your mobile carrier is supposed to know where you are and implement this privacy laws on the device, which most people have on them all the time, would really be a challenge. <laughs> That's one reason why I'm a, a huge believer that we, we should probably go towards a, a federal privacy law is just to allow the layers of simplicity and, and understand the way technology and regulation need to go hand in glove in something like privacy. That's right, Shane. I really sympathize with the lawyers that need to keep track of all these rules for their clients and, and advise on a way for organizations to comply with these laws. And I think in effect, what happens is that some state or some jurisdiction will become the least common denominator or the, the gold standard, and that that will become the de facto standard across all 50 states. And if that's going to happen anyway, why not make life easier for these organizations who truly do want to comply with data privacy and, and data protection laws? Let's give them one federal standard to live up to. Yeah. And then let's kind of tiptoe into what's going on with the EU. And even before the current situation with the GDPR, which I'll have you explain that in a second, was the cookies. And anytime you go to Europe, and now they've just ported them to the United States because it's, I think, simpler for people that have a web or a mobile presence, is they just make you click through that cookie experience, which is horrible because anybody who's in the digital economy space knows that you need as the least amount of friction possible. So the idea that I have to constantly say like, yes, I really do want to go to YouTube. I'm agreeing to this, like that one click, if you have to go through too many of those, you get frustrated and you usually depart from where it is you're trying to go. So now on top of cookies, they have created some really interesting <laughs> privacy challenges. So what's going on with the GDPR and how are we managing that here in the United States? And, and if you want to touch on it, let's get into what just got announced on, well, SHREMS 2 happened in July, but the Department of Commerce just released a white paper explaining the challenges. Sure, I'd be happy to, Shane. So the GDPR is an overall privacy law. It's not a sectoral approach to privacy regulation. As its name implies, a, a general data protection regulation, and it protects personal data of all sorts. It does include some special categories of personal data that require additional protection, but it sets a baseline floor for the collection, the processing, the storage, even the deletion of personal data, and really takes a very broad definition of what personal data is. It varies a little bit from what we're used to in the U.S. as PII, and that personal data is any data relating to an identified or identifiable individual. So it, it takes a very broad definition of what personal data is and then governs every aspect of how that personal data might be processed from collection onto deletion. And 
unlike its predecessor, the Data Protection Directive, which in, in the EU law directive must be implemented individually by all of the European Union member states. The GDPR is a regulation, which as soon as it was passed and, and went into effect in 2018, it became automatically binding on all the EU member states. And so it did not have the ramp up time or the, the potential for varying implementations by the, the various EU member states. And that became kind of the de facto global standard because the European economy is so strong and European consumers do business all over the world and, and Europe trades with jurisdictions everywhere. The exchange of personal data then, if it impacted European citizens, became a global matter. I think one of the reasons why people pay so much attention to the GDPR is because of the, the high fine. It's here 3 or 4%. That you can be fined, which is why all of a sudden a lot of general counsels and, and risk managers in major corporations started paying attention. Otherwise, they'd be like, Europe, eh, you know, we're sorry. <laughs> we'll say we're sorry, but we're not going to do anything about it. But in this case, they're like, ah, that's real money. That's right, Shane. That really woke people up. You know, the, the standard for fines possible under GDPR is up to 4% of a company's global annual turnover, they call it. We might say revenue in the US. But yes, up to 4% of their global, not even just the money they make in Europe, but their global annual revenue could be assessed in a, a fine under GDPR. That would make me pay attention. So the actual implementation has been at a minimum messy, shall we say. And I know that you've been dealing with this specifically in your role as the intellectual property constituency at ICANN. So can you give us a little background on that and, and why this is important and why not having access to information via a privacy data protection is a challenge? Sure, I'd be happy to. So it's important to understand the background that when the domain name system was conceived, there was a database of information called Whois. And that was a, a useful tool to look up the owner of any given domain name in the domain name system so that that domain owner could be contacted about any kind of technical issues related to the functioning of, of their domain name. It provided a, a directory or an address book of everyone who was in this kind of small circle of computer scientists that were working on this new thing called the domain name system. And as the domain name system grew up and, and businesses went online and consumers interacted more and more online, who is provided a, a valuable tool for a number of organizations ranging from law enforcement to intellectual property owners to consumer protection organizations that needed to identify who was behind a domain name and, and who was behind a website. And that availability of who is information over the years has allowed those kind of good guy organizations or, or folks acting in the public interest to identify, contact, potentially prosecute, but often just validate that the person behind a, a website was who they said that they were. And for quite some time, in order to procure an SSL certificate, for example, that would encrypt the web content going back and forth, your credit card information if you bought something online, the owner of the website had to be validated against that who is information. So who is really became a tool that, that was a backstop to keep everybody honest in an internet that is largely anonymized. And so as the internet grew up, that who is information grew up with it and, and became baked into a lot of cybersecurity tools and best practices and was really valuable from the beginning. So 
along came GDPR and real questions arose about whether personal data could be published in that WHOIS database because there were no controls about who could access that database and for what purpose. That ran afoul of several of the data protection principles in the GDPR. So we're allowed to geek out on this show, and that's where we're going to go now. <laughs> so this came around in 2018, and I can realize there was going to be a challenge to their current policies on privacy. And it's always been, you know, as you said, for like law enforcement and the intellectual property and the trademark community. And, you know, somebody who's trying to stop a bad actor online, the who is is a really valued tool. It wasn't designed for that when it was originally created, but it became that. So there's always been this challenge of how to do the correct thing with all that information. And you all you know, started with the original, you know, the whole expedited policy development process, this EPDP, to find a way to get a consensus with the group. So can you walk through what it is that the law enforcement and government and IP people were looking for? that doesn't seem to have come to fruition in the most recent documents? Sure. So the IP constituency, along with the business constituency, the government advisory committee or the GAC, the Security and Stability Advisory Committee, and the at-large advisory committee, which represents internet users worldwide, were looking for a system for standardized access to who is data. Essentially, a way that the requester of the data that the entity that needed the WHOIS data could be validated, authenticated, could make some signed assertions that in which they would agree, for example, that they will process the data in compliance with data protection laws and that they had a valid basis and a lawful basis and a, a purpose for processing the data and that they perhaps did own a trademark, the, the trademark which they were claiming that was being infringed, for example, by the domain name in question. And so what we were looking for was a system that would allow quite a bit of upfront validation of all those types of things, who you are, what IP rights you have, what you're asserting, and to build an equation that would result in the disclosure of that data when the right authenticated, accredited requesters needed it. And so that was the objective. Things went awry from there. And I'm, I'm happy to nerd out with you, Shane, on, on what happened and what some of the other objectives potentially were from some other groups that were represented in the EPDP. Would you like to dive into that now? Well, I think, you know, what I find has been an ongoing challenge. And as our, as one of the original ICANN board members, Michael Plage, will call it the original sin of the internet was, you know, the idea of autonomy has grown into one of the biggest challenges. And what you would need for this program for system standardized access disclosure, known as SSAD, SAD, is how to authenticate. And so it seems like you hit a couple roadblocks that technology should be able to fix. And so it's been kind of a quandary for the people who want to see, you know, lawful access, but, you know, the ability to deal with possibly unlawful, you know, content why we can't get around this hurdle. And as I mentioned in the beginning, I've been doing this for 20 years and that's like been our juggernaut is, okay, you know, who will finally agree that you should have this information? And so there was the privacy proxy that came around in the beginning and that we kind of worked our way through that. And some of the registrars, you know, make you pay to make your information private. And now with the advent of GDPR, that gave a lot of registrars an excuse to just pull the information as private because they didn't want the risk of being on the wrong side of that 
you know, regulatory equation. And now the access that was, has always been available is no longer disclosed. So, I mean, that's the part that I think this audience is really interested in, even though, you know, we could probably, you know, do an entire docudrama or comedy slash strategy around how ICANN comes to a consensus policy and what doesn't doesn't happen, which it, you've been living for two years. And it might be equal parts comedy and tragedy, Shane, but it has been an adventure. What I think it boils down to, Shane, the remaining challenges are grounded in the fears of monumental fines under GDPR. There is really no clarity or or certainty available for ICANN and really none for its contracted parties, the domain name registries and registrars that operate under contracts with ICANN. There's no certainty that they won't be fined for providing the data to a trademark owner or a law enforcement agency, even if that organization or individual has the best intentions and the clearest use case and a valid need to process that personal data to aid in a law enforcement investigation or to protect consumers from dangerous counterfeit goods being sold on a website. The fear is that even if ICANN and the registries and registrars do the right thing and provide that data, that they might be on the hook for violating the GDPR if they're sued either by a data protection authority in Europe or by their customer, the individual whose data has been disclosed. What we haven't been able to solve for is the regulatory, the legal certainty about who might be liable for what and in which cases. And that's really been a challenge for us. And I think has been the challenge that has prevented the EPDP from coming up with an outcome that's going to work for the folks that will be data requesters. So what do you recommend? Well, Shane, I think we would follow the guidance that the European data protection authorities have given us. And because of the, this is frustrating and perhaps a a bit unclear why, but we have departed from the guidance that we were given by the Belgian Data Protection Authority, which is the de facto regulator of ICANN based on ICANN's presence in Brussels, that asked us to develop an SAD, as as you say, that consists of centralized decision-making. And that means that either ICANN or some organization that has been contracted to make decisions about whether a requester's lawful basis is valid and and there are no data protection issues vis-a-vis the domain name registrant, we were asked to develop that centralized model. And instead, the contracted parties viewed the only way for them to control their own liability that was perceived to be by them owning the disclosure decision-making. And that, I think, was, was really unfortunate in that we didn't answer the call of the Belgian DPA and the European Data Protection Board, which encouraged ICANN to develop a centralized disclosure model. And we could have done that. And I think we still can if the ICANN board, depending on the ICANN board, how they handle the recommendations that were passed from the GNSO Council to build this SSAD. I think there's a lot there that the ICANN board can can latch onto to say, you really need to get back to work on this. or we really need to consider a, a different approach that is actually going to work. Yeah, I think a centralized model certainly helps on a technical implementation level. There's a lot of people that would like to just solve for one and not for many when you have to deal with over a thousand registrars and how they want to manage this. And then you guys discussed a cost recovery model. Is that something that's still floating or how, how is that going? Because that is a challenge. All this at the end of the day costs someone money. Yes. And this is actually a big 
issue for the SAD as it was developed and designed in the EPDP. ICANN estimates the cost for the SAD to be about $9 million to build and then another $8.9 million per year to run. And privacy advocates and, and registries and registrars who immediately bear costs from, from ICANN for anything that, that ICANN does, they fund ICANN, as you know, Shane, through domain name registration fees. They were concerned that they shouldn't have to bear the cost of providing this data, that this data is really a service to law enforcement and IP owners and cybersecurity, and that those groups should pay and not the domain name registrants and and registries and registrars. So the policy is for ICANN to operate this system on a cost recovery basis, meaning that ICANN doesn't profit from this. You get into murky legal issues if, if this is considered the sale of personal data, for example, as we we now know under the CCPA. So that's really a, a challenge for ICANN. And ICANN's board is really going to be faced with a tough decision when it meets this month about whether it is in the global public interest to approve a policy that's designed to meet the needs of requesters who have said publicly on the record that this system fails to meet those needs. So ICANN's board is going to be hard-pressed, I think, to justify the cost. Yeah, you had we're just reading a quote in one of the most recent letters that I imagine you penned, which is that despite the IPC and the BC, which is the intellectual property constituency and the business constituency's best intentions, the EPDP experiment has failed. And that's a lot of work with a lot of people who, you know, you guys have kind of come to a point. And I, I know this multi-stakeholder process, we all want to see it work because the internet's a very unique place. And as we're seeing in other parts of the internet, even in the standards bodies, we fear the Chinese model of being able to throw up firewalls and put pieces in place that make the internet fracture and possibly not allow everybody to have the continuous internet flow of information that we've had you know, from the beginning as a challenge. And so do you guys see that what you're working on, the privacy groups will say, is a possible challenge to that? It sounds like you've put a lot of things forward that could mitigate their concerns are you at the end of the road here? Or are you guys at a middle place where you can get back into negotiating? You know, kind of future cash for us. Where do you think you're going to go from here? That's a great question, Shane. And we had a lot of discussions about the language that you mentioned about the, the EPDP experiment. And I, I would be clear that I think in this current regulatory environment with ambiguity around who might be liable for, for what and the massive fines that are, that are on the table, that is not a conducive environment in which to build ICANN consensus policy. I wanted to be clear that that's what was conveyed with that message. And to your point, I think that more could be done here. I, I really do think that with a combination of a robust notice to registrants about the possibility that their data could be processed if they are alleged to be infringing someone else's rights or committing a crime, which is already a requirement, by the way, for registrars to include in their registration agreements with registrants and has been since 2013 in the current iteration of the registrar accreditation agreement. With the combination of features like that, and I I think real hard work on standards for what it takes for an organization to become accredited, to access who is data, and what kind of rights need to be present and asserted in a given case, I think that it's certainly possible to do an SSAT. And in fact, ICANN did quite a bit of work in developing a unified access model, is what they called it, 
and floated that actually to some European data protection authorities. And the response received from the data protection authorities was, go build this and go get us some more detail around this. We can't tell you yes based on the level of detail here, but go do that. And disappointingly, the EPDP team did not build on that unified access model, which the IPC and the, the BC would have preferred. Yeah, it seems like an ongoing do loop. It's the old adage, you know, it might work in reality, but how does it work in theory? <laughs> so it's like, they're like, well, we want you to build it. And you're like, it's expensive to build it. And they're like, well, once you build it, we'll tell you how you did it wrong. And you're like, why don't you tell us ahead of time what you don't like so we don't build it, right? It's a tough do loop. Well, to leave ICANN land, kind of exit that and come back into our current environment in the congressional and the federal space. Since you've been through this in the last couple of years, what lessons learned do you see that we should bring to our federal privacy laws that we're trying to work on? Understanding a lot of challenges around, you know, wanting to make sure we stay innovative and, you know, how do we deal with government involvement? That's something that I've given quite a bit of thought to, Shane, because if we do have a U.S. federal privacy law, boy, do we need to get it right. If we're going to preempt state law and a, a number of sectoral laws, We need to make sure that any U.S. federal data protection law includes the possibility for data to be processed for intellectual property owners, for law enforcement, and that there's no question that data can be processed and used by consumer protection organizations, child welfare organizations, counterfeit prosecution, for all the good in the GDPR and in data protection law that exists today, there's a real lack of, frankly, a lack of focus on how you can provide the data to third parties because the point of data protection law is how you protect the data and keep it controlled and and secure. But that has become a real practical shortcoming that the U.S. could really get right. And some clarity around that would really be useful. Well, Brian, thank you for all the time I know that you have dedicated to this process. I'm sorry, I will not be seeing you in a couple of weeks at ICANN, but I know that it's going to be virtual and I wish you a lot of luck and I look forward to talking to you soon about this and other great topics. Thanks for having me, Shane. Look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.